Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This Shabbat in synagogues throughout the world, the Jewish community will conclude its yearly cycle of readings of the five books of Moses known as the Torah, often called the Pentateuch. The name of the Torah portion is Ha'azinu, and it... uh, includes Deuteronomy 32, all 52 verses of it. The greater part of the Torah reading, Ha'azinu, which is usually translated as listen in or give ear, consists of a 70-line song, poetry, delivered by Moses to the people of Israel on the last day of his earthly life. Calling heaven and earth as witnesses, Moses exhorts the people. He says to them, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will recount it to you. Ask your elders and they will tell you how God found them in the desert land, made them a people, built a special relationship with them, and bequeathed to them as an inheritance a bountiful land. The song also warns against the pitfalls of plenty. It reads in part, Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You have grown fat, thick, and rotund. Yeshurun forsook God who made him and spurned the rock of his salvation and the terrible calamities that would result, which Moses describes as God hiding his face. Yet in the end, he promises, says Moses, that God will avenge the blood of his servants and be reconciled with his people and land. The parashah, as does the Torah, concludes with God's instruction to Moses to ascend Mount Nebo, from which he will behold the promised land, and from which he will see before dying on the mountain. For you shall see the land opposite you, but you shall not go there into the land which I gave to the children of Israel. Now, in some communities, there will be an additional Torah portion known as Vezot Habaracha, and that Torah portion will end, Never again did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moses, who the Lord singled out face to face, for the various signs and portents that the Lord sent him to display in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his courtiers and his whole country, and for all the great might and awesome power that Moses displayed before Israel. That is the way the book of Deuteronomy ends, and 
as I've suggested, this week we're reading Ha'azinu, and because there will be a holiday of Sukkot, um, the reading may be doubled in some Torah portions. Ha'azinu is especially noted, as I've indicated, by this 70-verse song or poem, and especially in the latter uh, verses. With me to discuss Ha'azinu in depth is Rabbi Eric Wisnia, a retired rabbi from New Jersey, um, Eric Wisnia, Rabbi Wisnia, was uh, ordained a rabbi at the Hebrew Union College in 1974 and has spent the entirety of his uh, career um, at one particular synagogue. Rabbi Eric Wisnia, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you, Rabbi Garten. How, how nice to hear from you. Well, uh, we are certainly appreciative of you joining us this morning to discuss the Torah portion known as Ha'azinu. And I want to begin um, in the most obvious way in talking about uh, poetry in the Torah, inasmuch as um, almost the entirety of this portion is a uh, poem, and um, if I'm correct, this is one of only two uh, poems that occur within the five books of Moses, yes? Yes, in fact, um, the text in the Torah is written very differently, uh, not that the, the letters are different, but the paragraph uh, form in the Bible is very different uh, here in Deuteronomy 32, with the extended poem, and also back in Exodus 15, with the Song of the Sea, Shirat Hayam, that uh, Miriam sings, uh, that contains the Michamocha. And do you have a sense from your studies and what you teach, why these particular sections of the Torah were offered in poetic meter? Um. My understanding is that these are some of the most ancient texts within the Torah, that these are poems or songs, uh, and in Hebrew the word is the same, that were sung around the campfire uh, for years before we even had a, the Torah was codified by, by Ezra around the year 450 BCE that these two poems in uh, Ha'azinu, Deuteronomy 32, and Shira Hayam in Exodus 15, these are some of the oldest texts that our people had, and they were sung uh, and um, memorized and repeated for years and years, so that these are uh, as as close as we can get to uh, actual tape recordings of uh, what went on. So are you suggesting that our listeners might consider that um, it was easier for the ancient Israelites to pass on their history in the form of uh, a song or poem than in the narrative form? Well, sure, because the uh, poetry in Hebrew, the song form, it's all meter. It's uh, repetition and 
Um, it's it's not uh, in Hebrew. There is no rhyme. It's not doing the cat in the hat in Hebrew is very difficult. Right. Because everything either is feminine and ends in ah, or oat, or masculine and ends in eem. So it's very hard to do rhyming. In fact, that concept doesn't even exist. In the Hebrew poetry right. of today, of modern Hebrew poetry. It, it, right, it, it's very hard. I remember, um, uh, Rabbi, when you and I were in uh, rabbinic school back in Jerusalem in 1970, 71, uh, I saw a copy of The Cat in the Hat, Hachatul Pa'alul, and it was just so strange how contorted the Hebrew was to make it fit Dr. Seuss's rhyming pattern. So if it's not similar to the standard rhyming poem, it must have more in common with um, the books uh, such as Chaucer and other uh, story poems of a, a later time. Um, I think that's exactly true. But, but God still speaks to us um, in, 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 through these poems. You know, it's funny that um, people say to me all the time, so does God speak to us in the Torah? And I say, of course God speaks to us, even though uh, no one had a tape recorder and no one said to God when he created the world, okay, God, you're on, let's hear it. Yeah, he or. You know, that didn't take place, but right. nevertheless, the Torah reflects God speaking to the Jewish people, certainly in the prose, certainly in the dialogues that people have. We're hearing uh, Moses talking to God, we're hearing Moses talking to Pharaoh, uh, and he's speaking for God. We hear it in, in the poetry, in, these par in, in particular, in this pa um, passage, where... Um, God is telling Moses, uh, first of all, it begins with Moses giving his farewell message to the people of Israel, telling them the history of our relationship with God and all that God has done with us. And, and in verse us, 3, he says, for the name of the eternal I proclaim. So it, indicating in the text itself that he, see, he, Moses, seems to be speaking in the name of the eternal throughout this whole right. poem. Right? Yes, he has. He's quite clear about that. <laughs> that uh, he is speaking for God. He is God's spokesman. And um, you know, it'd be interesting if someone said to him, "So Moses, did God wake you up this morning and hand you a you know a text and say, here's what you're going to read?'" Um, I don't think it's quite the way it's taken. It's taken as this is Moses, the human being, who is reflecting God's words through his speech, so that if God said, you know, did God specifically say this word or that word, is not the right question. The question is Moses and his intention in teaching the people. The, the, throughout our brief conversation so far, you've talked about um, God speaking, do you see the word speaking here in a literal sense or in a more metaphoric, poetic sense? Um, you know, thank you for, for, for clarifying <laughs> that, because I think that's exactly true, uh, Rabbi, that I don't see when it says, Vayomer Adonai, and God said. Um, I've all, you know, people say to me, well, does God talk? What kind of voice? Does, is he a man? Does he right. have a man's voice? 
And I say to people, you know, just as when I, uh, when I uh, hear a song and I say, that really speaks to me, in my heart, I get it. I'm hearing it in my heart. So when Abraham spoke to God, was it a conversation out loud, or was it a conversation that Abraham had in his heart or in his mind, and which he understood what God wanted, and in which he responded to that? And, and, I that, agree and, that. and that would uh, hold true for, for example, in verse 19, where it says, Vayar Adonai, and, and God, God saw. saw. Uh, and God was vexed, as the English tends to translate the next verb, and, and goes on and says, and God said, right? I will hide my countenance from them. Yes, yes. So God got, got offended, you know. God is, is a, a, human beings get offended. We are attributing to God our emotions. Obviously, God is beyond human emotion. God doesn't get annoyed. God doesn't say, you know, Moses, you really let me down here. The text reflects that perhaps Moses did let God down at some point. Uh, at May Merivah, the waters where he struck the stone instead of speaking to the stone. But those are metaphoric terms. I remember um, talking to one of my students when the Reform Prayer Book was talking about uh, reinstituting the words God who uh, gives life to the dead. Which, for our listeners, is a, um, um, a rabbinic concept that doesn't appear in the Torah. In the Torah, there's no conversation about life after death. The ancient rabbis of the first, second, and third century introduced the notion of life after death. And as time progressed, there was an ongoing dialogue among Jewish philosophers and Jewish theologians about what was the meaning of life after death. While Christianity was very clear that there, that there was a life after death and it was an essential part of their theology, it's not so direct and uh, filled with clarity within Judaism. And so as Rabbi Wisnier um, is indicating in some of the less traditional prayer books, uh, a term, Mechayeh HaMetim, who raises the dead, was substituted by a term right, who gives life to all. Um, so when, when the new prayer book came out with uh, the reinstitution, the new reform prayer book, uh, reinstituting Michael Hametim, one of my students asked me, said, well, how can I say that? And I said, because God does uh, revive a dead soul, a dead heart, a dead spirit, a withered soul. You know, and these words can be metaphoric. It doesn't mean that your, uh, you know, your heart stopped and you had zero brain waves, and then God brought you back. It can be metaphoric. In fact, I think most Hebrew, um, Hebrew, particularly prayer, should be taken metaphorically. We should take it seriously, but not necessarily so literally. Thank you. I mean, that's helpful for all who listen to the show this morning. Um, as we look at the words of this poem, um, as with all poems, 
there's uh, very rarely does one read a poem and think of it as a literal statement of the author's vision of the world, but rather the course, yeah. like an impressionist painter, the poet um, has an impression of the world as he sees it. Um, one of the more vexing um, verses actually does occur in verse 20. And I wanted to ask you how you understand it um, before we turn to the closing verses of the text. In um, verse 19, as I read, Vayar Adonai v'yinat, and the Lord saw and was vexed. And then it continues in English, and he spurned his sons and his daughters, it says his children, and then the text says, Vayomer astera panai mehem. And however you want to translate that, either I will hide my face, panai, from them, or as some English translations uh, indicate, I will hide my countenance from them. Um, does that mean that um, in this poem it's suggesting that God is angry and turns away from the Jewish people? Um, or is Quite there definitely okay? Quite definitely, it, it it implies that in a metaphoric sense that uh, as Moses tells them, you know, look, you people uh, were not so good to God. You didn't do what He wanted. You really annoyed Him, and so in response. God got angry and turned away and hid his face from you so you could not see his face. So, so there the are two ways, uh, Rabbi, mm -hmm. to understand that. One is um, your behavior made it impossible for you to see God. Oh, the other way is that God purposely turned his back we're calling it he here, but of course, of course. Um, God has no gender in that sense. So God have a back, but right. we're using English terms. That's right. We're using the language that's available to you and I and the listener. So when you hear this phrase, which is repeated in the prophets and certainly um, in other texts besides the Torah, and it says... Yeah, and on Yom Kippur, we sing all there, don't... Don't hide yourself from us. Right. So is God hiding because of our behavior, or are we simply unable to feel God's presence because of our behavior? Well, Stephen, obviously I'm taking it on a metaphoric note. Sure. But I think that even if one takes it, you know, remember, I, I don't take the, the text so literally. God is not a person. God does not have eyes. But we use human metaphors. We speak in, in the language of human beings. And just as, you know, when, when my mother turns away and won't look at me, I feel terrible. Uh, you know, whatever reason I caused it or whatever I did. So God, we, we use the image of father. Uh, although today, may we use the image of mother too. But, you know, God the father turns away and doesn't show his face to us. We're bereft. But all this is, this is poetic language, and we must realize that that's how the Torah speaks. That when we speak in parable, you know, I, I often think of um, Aesop and uh, his story about the uh, rabbit and the turtle that have a race. 
and I and I say to people when I talk about this story, I say, did Aesop think that rabbits and turtles spoke Greek? <laughs> and of course they say no. I said, well, then isn't that a silly story? And they say no because the rabbit represents fast and the turtle is slow. And if you don't, if the the people who have talent goof off, they won't uh, succeed. <laughs> so, so the rabbit or the the hare and the tortoise are uh, <coughs> symbolic exemplars of particular archetypes. And in the Torah, right. you're suggesting that as we read this poetry, the people of Israel stand overlooking the uh, land promised to them, and Moses is once again recounting for them the promise um, and warning them of the promise and its conditions that we're not looking, as you understand it, to read each word in a literal sense, but rather to have a sense of what the Israelites uh, passed on to their descendants. The, the text is very clear, I think, at the very beginning that um, God wants this story to be an eternal story. That it's not just for those who were in the wilderness or those who died in the wilderness, but those who come after them. Um, right, as we read yesterday in our ten minutes in the morning for um, on Yom Kippur, we read, "This is not uh, not just for you standing here today. This is for your children. This is for those who are not standing here today who will come after you." The Torah is eternal. It is. It is our understanding of God's speaking to us. Um, verse 45 um, speaks mm -hmm. to that and says, When Moses finished reciting all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words which I have warned you this day, enjoying them upon your children, that you may observe faithfully all the terms of this teaching, of which um, the word in Hebrew is Torah, for this is not a trifling thing for you, it is your very life. Through it you shall long endure on the land you are to possess upon crossing the Jordan. Um, so it makes it clear that as Judaism has taught uh, since eternity, since the very beginning of its existence as a monotheistic tradition, we have an expectation of these words and their intentions of being eternal. Right. So when we were chatting before our show began, I asked you what were your favorite verses in Ha'azinu. And in the time that's left to us, I want to ask you to speak to the last few verses, verses 48 through 50, which you identified as being especially meaningful to you. So perhaps yeah. I'll, I'll read them to the listener, and then you can chat about them. The very day that God, that Lord spoke to Moses, ascend the heights of Abiram to Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, facing Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving the Israelites as they are holding. You shall die on the mountain, and... Um, that you are about to ascend and shall be gathered unto your kin, as was your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered uh, to his kin. For 
Okay, so let's leave it there for the moment. How do you understand? We have a, a few minutes left. Um, how do you understand those verses, and why are they so meaningful to you? Well, particularly, I, I've um, always taught that uh, Moses uh, realizes he's not going to uh, be the leader of the Israelites forever, and that he's not going to be uh, taking them across the Jordan into the Promised Land, which, of course, was the focus of his life. Um, and I always think of that wonderful quote from Pirkei Avot, the ethics of our fathers in the Talmud, where it says, Lo alecha hamlacha ligmor, velo ata ben chorin lehibatel mimena. Uh, you, you can't finish the work, but you're not free to, to give it up and just stop. You have to keep trying. And then the important thing is to pass it on. And this particularly has been uh, important for me, Steve, because I just retired in February. And uh, I'm now a, uh, an official bum, and uh, I had to pass on the mantle. And I didn't accomplish everything, and I didn't finish everything. Jewish life's still going to go on, but I feel comfortable passing it on to the next generation, the next generation of leadership. Uh, because that's what Moses did, and I guess I have to do it too. So do, do you, in a personal way, not only in your role as a teacher and spiritual leader, do you find solace from the end of this parasha, personal support that all who uh, kind of work on behalf of the eternal, on behalf of the Jewish people, will there will be a finite end to their work um, and that their task is to not um, allow it to fade away with them? Yes. Um, in fact, I used the metaphor that I, I once heard um, um, many years ago about the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, of course, the, the patriarch, uh, many, many, many stories in Genesis about him. And Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, so many stories about him. And then there's Isaac in the middle. And Isaac, well, he, he wasn't sacrificed, thank God, but, you know, Isaac's life is certainly not comparable to Abraham or, or Jacob. So the, the question is, why do the rabbis say, our God and God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because Abraham was so great, and Jacob was so great, and Isaac, well, he wasn't that great. He was a middle the child. Is, right. The answer is, he didn't mess it up. He took it from Abraham, and he passed it to Jacob, and it was still going strong. So I like to give myself solace by saying, I took what the great rabbis have done before, I'm going to pass it on to the other rabbis who are going to pick up my mantle, and hopefully I didn't mess it up too much. I want to thank Rabbi Eric Wisnia for sharing with us not only his scholarship and erudition, but making this a very personal conversation. Um, you can find a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes, and you can turn to CHRI website and find a podcast. In addition, should you wish to write uh, a question directed at either Rabbi Wisnier or myself, you can direct it uh, to jff 
at chri.ca. And if uh, we receive letters and comments that we can, we'll either respond to them in writing or perhaps if they're of general interest, we'll respond to them on the air. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, this is Rabbi Stephen Garten again thanking my guest, Rabbi Eric Wisnia, and bidding you shalom and have a good day. Shalom,